Hello, friends. Welcome back. It's Hit Factory. Just Aaron here, uh, solo at the top of the episode. Just for a brief introduction before we get into today's proceedings, a little bit of a different format than usual. Uh, we got an opportunity to sit down with a friend of the show, David Parsons, who is the host of an awesome podcast called Nostalgia Trap. Uh, and they put out weekly content over on their feed that are conversations about history and politics with a lot of leftist thinkers, writers, podcasters like Carly and I, um, extremely online personalities, you name it. Uh, and it's always conversations about sort of how our individual lives intersect with big events and debates of our era, the way the debates of our era are informed by previous eras. And uh, as the name would imply, it's also a, a really great show about that trap of nostalgia and whether or not we can ever truly break free from it and look at our lives and our history uh, with a, a good sort of critical lens. It's a project that obviously resonates uh, with Carly and I, given what we do here on Hit Factory. And so uh, we thought it was an awesome opportunity to get together and just chat with David. He really is doing a fantastic show over there as an entry point. Uh, friends of our program, Aaron Thorpe and Donald Bornstein, have both guested on recent episodes, so check those out if you want to. Um, but lots and lots of great content over there. Really, really can't recommend Nostalgia Trap enough. Uh, so for the purposes of our conversation today, we decided on a really interesting film, 1994's Natural Born Killers, directed by Oliver Stone. I think this is a really great conversation about the film itself its enduring significance, whether or not it even is significant anymore comes up a whole lot. Uh, but it's also a broader talk about problematic and difficult art that extends well past the legacy of NBK and up to some timely examples that we're talking about online even today. So I'll get all the housekeeping out of the way here at the top and uh, just let the episode run in a moment. But follow along with us at Hit Factory Pod. For bi-weekly bonus content, you can subscribe to the show at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Linda, Jesse K, our overlords, thank you both so much, always. Uh, and without further ado, here is Natural Born Killers. Platoon. Wall Street. Born on the 4th of July. JFK. Oliver Stone's vision has changed the way we saw our past. Now he takes a look at where we are and where we're going. And you'll be shocked at what he sees. and Mallory, feared by thousands. I love you someone, baby. I love you. Watched by millions. We're fighting. Can't stop fighting. Nobody can. It's kind of like the Twilight Zone or something. Woody Harrelson, Juliette Lewis, Robert Downey Jr., and Tommy Lee Jones. Natural-born killers. In the media circus of life, they were the main attraction. 
All right, on the slate today, we're talking about the 1994 Oliver Stone film, Natural Born Killers. Aaron and Carly, how's it going? It's going. It's what it's an happening. experience that film is. Yeah, very excited <laughs> to talk. I'm still this reeling, one. by the way. It's a sick, twisted roller coaster ride into the American nightmare. That's, that's <laughs> I feel like some critic must have described it that way, right? A hundred percent. I watched a Charlie Rose interview, in fact, where I think he does exactly that. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and, and and I don't remember her name now, but there's a, 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 a writer, a critic, someone who was Oliver Stone's ex-wife. Uh, and, and Charlie Rose like wrote or read rather, uh, her take on the movie live to him where she's like on a stylistic level, I find it brilliant. Oliver is a, a remarkable filmmaker, <laughs> but as a film, I detest this movie. I absolutely hate it and everything it stands for dot, dot, dot. It, it was a lot of fun. That's intense to read a, a a scathing review from the guy's ex-wife just right on his <laughs> right to his face yeah. on television. He's like Brenda. We could have <laughs> had a conversation about this. Well, you know, Charlie Rose, you know, for all the man's problems, and and they are many. Uh, he was certainly not a uh, apprehensive interviewer. You know. No, I love the Charlie Rose interviews. I mean, I'm sad he got canceled, but that's his fault, right? Yeah. Oh, we'll have a conversation about cancellation, I think, as it relates to this movie. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's, right? There's some territory there that I feel like applies to movies people are talking about online today and mm -hmm. the response to this film, but we can save that. I wonder if we could maybe start with our personal, uh, our, our personal sort of experiences with this movie. I mean, how many times have you guys seen this movie, etc.? I would love to know. Did you see it at a young age and it scarred you? Carly's Carly's got a good story, actually. It's not a good story. It involves weed and feeling stressed out watching a film. That's like <laughs> that's like a thing that most people experience. No, I've only seen this movie twice. The first time I saw it, I was in college. I got stoned and I don't know whose decision it was to put this movie on. It wasn't <laughs> mine. It was definitely not mine. Um, and it was a stressful experience being high and watching this film obviously but I think what made it stressful was not like oh like the weed was making me paranoid but it was more that like there's so much to take in about the movie that like my mind was not able to process all that was going on so I was just experiencing like two hours of overwhelm mm. um rather than like you know uh, sort of like acute fear there were several moments though wherein I found myself like actually sweating because I was like very undone by what I was seeing on screen but that was the last time I saw it and that was many years ago um, and it was really interesting coming back to this movie uh, sober and amid a, a context a, a background context of a conversation that hasn't really changed since the movie came out has sort of morphed a little bit, but mm -hmm. this idea of like the purity of images and like how images can corrupt. And like, I think I was not ripe for that kind of conversation or mm -hmm. consideration in college. Um, and so I appreciated like that clarity sort of informing my viewing um, on this most recent watch. 
That makes total sense to me. I mean, it is a, it is like a like constructed as a media overload type movie that would just completely saturate you and overwhelm the stoned mind. It's a, I mean, there are panic <laughs> panic attack movies for sure, and like yeah, even I mean, even beyond just the content, which like I mean, I, watching it this time, it didn't even seem like that violent a movie to me, honestly, compared to a lot mm -hmm. of stuff I've seen. Yeah. But it, yeah, it's just the 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 like non-stop mtv aesthetic of just yes. canted camera angles and black and white and color and black and white and color and now we're doing like little fast edits with uh you know woody harrelson all bloody and little satanic horror movie snippets it's a, <laughs> yes. yeah it's a it's a little much it's a lot <laughs> how about a you Aaron? for like a 19 year old stoned mind to be like sure i guess we're watching this yeah <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and on my end of things, this is actually the first time I've seen this movie in full. I've, I've seen snippets of it. Uh, I briefly tried to watch it one time. I feel like in in high school on YouTube, there was like a really, really bad, like low quality rip of it. Um, actually, my my familiarity with it and, and my initial intrigue uh, with the film was actually sparked by like a rabbit, an Internet rabbit hole about Columbine. Um, you know, like I. I grew up in the 90s. I remember it being a huge media event. I remember it being very scary for my parents and for a lot of people in like, you know, suburban communities and and when that was happening. Uh and and for whatever reason and and it wasn't anything like, you know, oh, I I uh, you know, found something resonant in their messages or anything. I just found the the idea of and the, and the and the ideology behind like mass shooting and specifically like these kids who decided I'm I'm gonna go to a school and and kill people, you know. Like I I found that fascinating is kind of a, a a nasty word for it, but that is what it was. It was sort of like this fascination with this this fixation on like what that is. Uh, so started like watching like documentaries on it and reading about it. You know, I I watched like Bowling for Columbine at the point too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and everywhere I went, it was MBK MBK MBK. Right? They the you know Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris called their their sort of uh plan nbk for for natural born killers and uh so so that was my initial like journey to it where i was like oh okay like so this movie is the thing that got these guys to mm -hmm. to kill people um and i and i didn't think of it in that sense like i was never someone who was like oh you know movies are are brainwashing because I, I was i was a cinephile from like a young age too i was never like this is this doesn't compute to me i, I don't understand and, and i don't buy this relationship one-to-one -one with like violent media and and real life violence um but i did find the the connection fascinating um and and that to find that the movie was actually a satire of the very thing that i feel like klebold and harris kind of warped and mm -hmm. misinterpreted mm -hmm. in their mind uh is is all the more interesting especially after watching it in full this time yeah, I I totally agree. I mean, I I I'm I I'm an old corn cob, so I was actually in high school when this movie came out, mm -hmm. and 1994 was like, uh, it I I think it's like the year I came online as like loving Hollywood movies. It's the mm -hmm. year that like Forrest Gump came out. <laughs> you guys just yeah. did the, you guys just did the Fugitive. I was like a huge Fugitive guy. I, mean, I was like 15 years old, but like. Natural Born Killers was a new edge, and it was part of, um, I mean, I guess we'll talk about Tarantino at some point, but that name 
Tarantino was like all over the place in 94 because Pulp Fiction was coming out and it was like making a big splash at all the film festivals. And it felt like cool and subversive and punk. And like there was something there was some charge to natural born killers, knowing that Tarantino had written the story uh, and Oliver Stone was just coming off what, like JFK and like all these yeah. like huge yeah. successful movies and a whole oh, and a whole like 80s of like making movies about the Vietnam War that were supposed to be like the hardcore. So it was like, I don't know, there was some hardcore edge to it and yeah columbine had not happened when that when it came out so i was just um i had a natural born killers t-shirt which now like i i, I wish i had it because it's like such an artifact but it was yeah. the t-shirt was like you know the, the animated sequences where like they're like really yeah. like gonzo versions of themselves it was yeah it's a, it was a t-shirt with like woody harrelson on it like basically like shooting a woman into pieces and oh, now God. I'm thinking about like, what the fuck was I doing wearing this as like a 16 year old <laughs> kid? Um, I don't know. That conversation about media and, and uh, violence was so, so dominant. I remember at this time, like in school, we were we were writing essays about uh, about media violence and, and what it means to live in a world where media is super violent. And the word that I know the conversation is the same in some ways, but the word that, that I don't hear anymore is desensitization. Everyone used that word. They said, yeah, yeah, we're becoming desensitized and natural born killers seem like almost like a troll at that whole idea. Yes. The demands for sort of like the purity of images are, I think a response to a, a hypersensitivity um, mm. to like violence or perceived violence. Um, but sort of only on the plane of media and media consumption, not necessarily like, you know, uh, a hypersensitivity to say like the violence of our police state, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's where I find the the breakdown to be um, illuminating and troubling um, in terms of today's discourse. But yeah, I mean, I was old enough in the 90s um i didn't see this when, movie when it came out i i didn't see it till i was in college which is some years later but i do remember the conversations about particularly video games and violence like parents were really obsessed with the idea that like video games were like corrupting children's minds um and and of course like you know the ratings for films and and the way that um those were sort of policed when it comes to kids and and music too, like the conversation around Marilyn Manson as it relates to the Columbine kids, um, I think is another important one. And all of this kind of signaling a broader, like critical posture towards media and not necessarily the acknowledgement of the structural forces informing <laughs> a oh, yeah. violent society or like a, a, a propensity towards violence you know capitalism is built on violence it's built on exploitation and and oppression and and so it's interesting that there have been all these ways you know in in neoliberalism uh, um, within the landscape of neoliberalism that we have tried to sort of narrow the the scope of of what is causing the problem um and those arguments to me just end up falling really flat and what i love about this film that i think i've come to realize um watching it now uh in 2022 much older um than when i last watched it is i think not only is stone saying fuck you and your like revulsion towards 
uh, violent images in media um, because he's showing us all of the different ways that we consume those things that aren't considered problematic, like news and whatever Mm -hmm, else. mm -hmm. Right. But I think he's also saying like, these people aren't natural born killers. Like they were created this way. Like they were, they were turned into this um, by society. And that's not to say that they were turned into this because they watched a scary movie. Um, I think he points the finger at a lot of other institutions in the film um, that are implicated in their violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, he's, I mean, it's it's a wide net, right? Like, there's a lot going on in this movie. A, a frenzied is the only word I can think of to describe it. And he seems almost as, like, confused as as anyone else in the movie about the kind of movie he's making. Yeah, like Like, there's indictments here of media there's indictments here of law enforcement there's indictments here of like uh you know the 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 myth of the nuclear family all of these kinds of things happening there's systems and cycles of abuse happening here and and uh you know the rodney dangerfield shit is some of the nastiest shit i swear to god yes it's it's psychotic but it's also really really like kind of brilliantly handled. Um, oh I, yeah, I, it's the most I, to me. It's the most memorable part of the movie is the yes. like sitcom abusive father scene. It's that's pretty early in the movie. Yes, I, that just that just lacerated me when I was young. I didn't know what to think of that. Like the the I, I think that kind of combination of the sitcom style and the like really rough violence was is it became kind of cliche after after this, but it was so new at that moment that it was pretty shocking. Yes. I think there's so much about Oliver Stone's style and um, his like the deafness with which he collages images and and different kinds of media um, that like now is is well-tread territory. And, and there's a consuming audience that kind of recognizes that cinematic language. But at the time, particularly with JFK and I think also with this movie, like not a thing that we were used to or or literate in and and there's so much about what he's doing here that is shocking um but i want i wanted you to go more on that because i think the rodney dangerfield stuff is really <laughs> really incredible yeah i mean it uh it, there's just like a potency there I, I i read too that i guess rodney dangerfield was given permission to like rewrite his entire mm-hmm. uh scene like all all of his characters dialogue so he like really juiced it up and i guess probably made it you know flow a little bit more like a punchline but he was reading these really horrific awful you know lines yeah of it sounds like rodney dangerfield it still like sounds like him it even does. though like the shit he's saying is so fucking gnarly jesus yeah which which makes it even creepier you know it's like here's this very sort of like iconic comedic figure Mm-hmm. saying these really awful terrible things um and doing so in like a cadence and and in a way that feels familiar to us it, it adds that extra sort of like textual level of familiarity and comfort that makes the whole thing that much more disarming to me it's part of like what i think is one of the strengths of the film which is this this feeling that tv um and images are everywhere uh, i mean those sequences where they're where mickey and mallory are you know, like in in hotel rooms and there's like cowboy movies and horror movies that are mm-hmm. being projected outside of the windows. It reminds me of like um, 
Muppet Babies and uh, yes. Pee-wee's, yes. <laughs> Pee-wee's Playhouse. Like yeah. bo- both of those did that thing where it's sort of like you opened a door and there was like some old movie like outside. Yeah. Yes. Love that stuff. And it feels like the way that the media is just sort of like, I don't know, it's it's that it's um, uh, it's saturated the whole world that they live in. And and that part, even I mean, even Juliette Lewis's character, you know, her abusive childhood is portrayed as a sitcom and like all of it is just to me that's the the, the best part of this movie is just how mm-hmm. deftly he wraps media into every element of it even though it's total sensory fucking overload <laughs> yes well that's like that's the thing right he's saying this is sort of the lens through which we understand our world is like the language of tv and film um it's at once this feeling of like betrayal because you're like Rodney no and then on the other hand you're like yeah that's (laughs) that it's it's that much more effective because you do have this relationship with him yeah you're right I mean it feels like Rodney Dangerfield was kind of a weird figure because I when I was young he was always around and I thought he I thought he was from the 50s like I thought he he always had a suit on he seemed like he was always like with Johnny Carson but it it, right out like I learned later Rodney Dangerfield was didn't become famous until like the eighties, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it is perfect that he's kind of like this out of time character. Yeah. You know, and going to the thing that you said, Carly, I think it's really important. I've seen people, I think, misinterpret this. I'm not going to say misinterpret. Like I said, I think Oliver Stone is as confused as anybody is about exactly <laughs> what the movie's meaning is. Uh, so a, a different interpretation of this film, I think, uh, keeps it at a very sort of topical examination that says, uh, oh, these people were created by mass media, by, you know, sort of like the American identity at the heart of all of these different things. I don't think that's true necessarily in, in my interpretation of it. I think what it is, is it's a movie constantly in search of a uh, subjectivity that feels reliable, you know, and 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 it never finds it. And mm-hmm. so those moments where we see the sitcom kind of meeting it, it's also remember like a meet cute story between uh mickey and mallory and <laughs> as car as carly said it's like it's these two people who have no frame uh or or, or context outside of mediation of the hyper mediation with which to understand their existence right they they've been kind of given these other images and they can't they can't quite square why their existence feels different and apart from what they're kind of told that it should be, right? Like so, mm-hmm. so it's not like them saying, like, oh, television made them this way. It's like, no, no, no. They only they can only understand the world through television. Like that's the yeah. thing that try they're trying to make sense of, but that's a a very fractured looking glass through which to try to understand the way that things operate in the real world fractured and reductive right which is like the problem we see today right like everyone has decided that politics are a marvel movie and that's not that's a that's that will always fall short of an understanding of like the dynamics and uh you know structures of power at work and i think like if stone is doing anything really well he is whether he's meaning to or not asserting that 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 experience of the world and you know our understanding through um mediated 
ideas Mm -hmm. and versions of people is one that is inherently corrupted. Ironically, one of the most recent Marvel properties uses this same framing device of an old timey sitcom. Oh, yeah. Uh, where I, like, I feel there's like it's so- everywhere. Yeah. Like, I, I know it's more popular now. You know, we kind of said that this one sort of uh, was was maybe like a tip of the spear kind of thing. But it, it is funny the way that like media has has co-opted this specific kind of like, oh, is it, you know, the, the real world isn't isn't the same as a sitcom. Uh, and now <laughs> it's made its way to, you know, uh, witches and, and robots uh, in in WandaVision. Well, th- you know, I, the the Marvel thing is really interesting, and and I agree with you with the, the the feeling that you know there is a certain investment in uh in, in kind of movies as as almost like religious stories that are supposed to teach mm-hmm. us how to be good and yes. it's like if a character does something bad in a movie and he's not punished then that's problematic is a really yep. narrow and ugly way of looking at art and it's like actually in line with like um it's actually in line with like the censorship history of Hollywood and the Hayes codes and you mm-hmm. know all the stuff about like movies need to be a, a force more or less of, uh, of 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 transmitting positive values um, you know stone is intervening in that in a, in a really interesting way I mean uh, one, one thing I'm thinking about is I wonder you, what you guys think about the fact that like there's no one good in this movie like everyone is grotesque like they're every single character it, that's what makes it to me an emotionally draining and overwhelming experience yes. and maybe like an unpleasant experience because everyone fucking sucks it's like just even the people who get killed are just like these grotesque monsters like it's just a really ugly vision of american society and the, and the other part of it is like i'm wondering well how does that square with stone's role in hollywood because like we know that like we know Stone Oliver Stone is like this big left wing guy, right? Like he's mm-hmm. like a guy who's interested in telling us about capitalism. I mean, he's he's more or less. I mean, Michael Moore in his politics, he actually probably more radical than that. He's just kind of a tanky. Like Oliver Stone goes over to like <laughs> yeah. Russia and like talks with Putin and stuff, whatever. But like, he, I I always I'm I'm thinking about I guess like how do we square the left wingness of Oliver Stone with natural born killers? Because that's the one clue to me is that like we know his politics, but at the same time, there's all part of it feels socially conservative as a film because it's sort of like, oh, we're too violent as a culture and we need to like have better media or something. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. I mean, it is an inherently kind of reactionary framework that he's operating within, right? Uh, I, I don't think, uh, I don't. I don't think leftists are absolved from ever uh, accidentally uh, falling <laughs> into those sorts of ideological kind of loopholes like that. Um, and and Oliver Stone, especially, is someone you know from, uh, you know, kind of a different era, sort of like a Vietnam era, you know, mm-hmm. uh, of of left wingedness uh, that kind of calluses over, or, you know, starts to feel a little bit more kind of moderate as we as we move uh further in into time and, and or just old-fashioned so, something yeah. yeah yeah it's a little old-fashioned I, I i think for me you know the enjoy your enjoyment of this movie i'll say this more broadly your enjoyment of this movie i think is dependent on whether or not you think oliver stone uh believes himself complicit in the in the indictment or not you know, like wh- mm. whether or not he also sees himself as a guilty party in terms of like his portrayal of this sort of glor- glorification or fantasization around violence in media and around the mediation of culture. Do you think that he does view himself as complicit? 
I like to believe so. Yes, I think mm-hmm. I because I, I enjoy this movie. You know, I I think it's really good. Um, and I and and because the movie, I think so often while towing that line falls on one side or the other. You know, it it, it feels kind of it, it's certainly heavy handed. Uh, you know, it's, <laughs> but but also like I I that's I, an un, that's an understatement. I, I think I think subtlety is overrated as a as a value and especially as a a judgment system for art i think sometimes you need a blunt object and i'm okay with it this uh, is a polemic done... right i mean yeah. it really is it's meant to be it's not meant to be a nuanced uh reflection of all the subtle elements of violence in american society it's meant to like have a giant thesis and hit you over the head with it over and over again i don't know it made sense in 94 i really did because it was like that's the <laughs> They, yeah, I mean, he really. Yeah. A part, I feel like part of the history of this movie is that like, that he he kind of hit the moment right because in '94 this was when the like Tanya Harding and uh, Nancy Kerrigan thing was happening. This mm-hmm. is when, I mean, in '94 was and 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 before it had been you're already like leading into an era where like tabloid culture and the the stuff like the stuff that um that Robert Downey Jr.'s character is supposed to represent this yes slime like, ball. I don't know if you guys remember like current affair and hard copy and all this bullshit. Oh, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was I mean, that seems like natural born killers. It's funny because it's like it seems like, yeah, reaction to that, but also like takes place in that world. It's an extension of it. It's capitalizing on the same impulses. Yes, I totally agree. Um, I am guilty of watching when I was younger America's Most Wanted. Uh, Love oh, that yeah. show. Like- yeah. <laughs> Cops was one of like the highest watched shows on like TV up yeah. until it got, you know, summarily canceled because of uh, the, the 2020 demonstrations. Right. Yeah. It, what an it's, era. It just... it's, it's almost like a lead up to social media because you're like people were all of a sudden you wanted to see real shit. Like I, Jerry Springer was also yes. popular during this time where you just yeah. saw like I want to see trashy regular people fighting and like uh, Mickey and Mallory totally seem like they're an extension of that Jerry Springer universe. And we were looking for we were looking for that's the thing is like I guess the who's complicit in in, in, in this too because the audience is part of this and he portrays like yes. Americans as like pretty stupid and just eating this shit up. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. This I'm so glad you mentioned this. This is what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> I think this is like particularly germane to the conversation around blonde, which I won't get into for fear of getting canceled. Um, <laughs> is it out? I haven't seen it yet. It's, no, I mean, it's not so out, it, right? It, it played at Venice. I think it also played at TIFF. It's going to do like a, a, a theatrical run for the next like couple of, of weeks. And then it's going on to Netflix, I think, next weekend. Oof, uh, I love all the, all that guy's movies. So me I, too. I'm looking forward yeah. to it. Yeah. Again, another person. <laughs> What's the problem? Another person who uh, loves, you know, using a blunt object. You know, he's he's not subtle at all either. Andrew Dominic. So. But this is the thing, right? It's like, is is there a belief that media can and should indict institutions of power um, mm-hmm. and, you know, the sort of corrupted corners of our society by utilizing the images and like sigils of those things? Sure. There are some people that believe, no, <laughs> that is not possible. You must not show those things. Those things are not allowed and they cannot ever be used to make a point about the things that they are supposedly indicting. I disagree. Um, And I think that within the right hands, uh, forcing an audience 
to participate in and perhaps confront their own salaciousness towards violence and uh and um and other things that mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. we uh deem evil that i think that under the right hands that can be a really effective tool for uh subversion and in some rare cases like radical art um and i don't know that stone is quite there but he's more there than most other uh most other directors particularly with this film and so when you say david like that he's using this like blunt object like that to me is not only indicting himself and the audience but i think he's also forcing us to ask the question of like what are the kinds of movies that tell stories that are moralizing Mm -hmm. like are they Mm -hmm. always these like nice sort of like oscar Beatty, like you know amistad or whatever Mm -hmm. or like are they films that actually like entrench us in the very things that we are um that we are like most ashamed of in our mm-hmm. society. Yeah, yeah. No, that uh, it's. I mean, it's a provocation, and I and I think I, I think you're right, Aaron. And I don't I don't I don't really know what he means by it in some ways. The more the the like, I think I I feel like he has a chaotic kind of perspective on this stuff, and 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 that works with the aesthetic because the aesthetic is is chaos too, and it's meant to it's meant to sort of like drill this notion into your into your mind that we're. Uh, we're sort of living in that in in that chaos. It seems like the film. It's weird because it's like an editorial, right? Like it's mm-hmm. a it's a movie, and I think that's part of my problem with it. Is like it's, I've seen this movie a million times. I I've watched a lot of Oliver Stone's movies. I I love this this aesthetic. I probably watched The Doors a thousand times mm-hmm. in high school too. Yes. But like, I don't know. Natural Born Killers now seems like um of its time a little bit like it seems like it's it's uh it's an argument made about a particular moment in culture there's no internet here like there's no i mean it just it doesn't take place in quite the same america even though a lot of the same big ideas are there i don't know if that makes sense it totally does and i think that you're right you know it's it it really uh is lightning in a bottle but it it's it's because of its proximity to all of these big media events, right? Like this is only a few years removed from uh, the Rodney King incident. This is, you know, which is in the, the movie, which Rodney is, King, right. yeah. Yes. And, and which Spike Lee did with that with Malcolm X as well, right? Mm-hmm. With Rodney King. And it felt like this was sort of like the, the big filmmakers, the big auteurs were doing something where they were noticing media and kind of inserting it in their movies this, this way. Natural yes. Born Killer seems like the maximum movie that's like about media of this time. Yeah, absolutely. And it's only a couple of like months removed because this came out in like August of 94. So it's only a handful of months after like the beginnings of the OJ Simpson trial. Yes. Right. Yep. Like, yeah. Uh, and it finds its way into the movie, too. You know, like like juice is right there, like on the screen at the end. Um, <laughs> and uh, so uh, the editing process for this movie, by the way, must have been insane. Uh, <laughs> I just think about like how how much effort had to go into that. And then also like having all this this stuff happen after you have like a final edit of the movie and being like okay now let's let's put this in here too it's a it's a radically edited movie for a hollywood movie right mm-hmm. like it doesn't feel like many many hollywood movies have this many cuts this many weird angles uh, it feels like and maybe that's what we're lamenting in part with the with the 90s in terms of nostalgia what was it better in the 90s you know i don't know but like the part i think hollywood paid for people to do adventurous stuff 
yes. and and Oliver Stone was someone who, for whatever reason, had a lot of capital at that moment, and it felt like he could make whatever he wanted. Um, and and the result was some I don't know really intense movies. I don't I don't think if Natural Born Killers is something that that Hollywood would take a risk on today, it would have a very different. It just feels like a totally impossible movie to make in the 21st century. I could be wrong about that, but no, I, no, you're a hundred percent right. There's no fucking way this would make it past anyone's table. Like this, this film is not only talking about things that I think very few movies like explore in the way that he is exploring them, but it's also a movie that is meant to make you uncomfortable. And no one fucking wants that anymore. Everyone wants films right now or assumes that people want films that make you feel good baby bird everything down your gullet for you (laughs) leave leave no rock or idea unexplained or unindicted right it's like we've had this conversation on the show before where it's like a, a character does something problematic and if you don't like have a person in the movie saying what you did is problematic then like the movie is viewed as like inherently endorsing that thing. Mm. Like there's just no room for audience participation in the construction of art, right? Like we are as an audience viewing this film, we are completing the piece for stone. Like right, right. it doesn't exist in its full sort of spectrum of ideas and experiences without an audience watching it. And that is something that Hollywood does not care about or spend time and money on. And and I think particularly when it comes to movies that are examining institutions of power through very charged, explicit imagery, that's definitely not a territory that anyone wants to go in, Mm. except for, say, Andrew Dominic. And like everyone's losing their fucking shit about it. (laughs) I was I was going to bring this point up, you know, and and to be clear, we have not seen the movie. I do not know whether or not the movie is going to be good for for all I know. It could be a complete and utter failure. But, you know, there's there's so many of these kind of charged, like finger pointing questions uh, that that I'm getting that Carly's getting like it, it, all of our friends when when people talk about this movie online, which is like, why do you want to see this? And part of my reason, I think, stems from what we're talking about here, which is, you know, we don't really let filmmakers make provocations anymore with studio money mm. and allow them mm. the opportunity to like fail miserably at trying to like make these sort of like blunt artistic statements in ways that are uncomfortable and unsettling and maybe in somewhat bad taste, you know, like we, we just don't allow that to happen anymore. It's like a thing that, that, and and it's not because we have a, a, a newfound like moral clarity or anything <laughs> like that. It is, it is because it's, yeah, go ahead. it's not a thing that like, uh, people are willing to take a risk on anymore you know and, and it's all sort of it, it it's it's very driven by capital it's not driven by any sort of right. moral impulse a hundred percent it's the profit margin that needs to be that is has become so extreme at this point that like there are there's no room for films that you know make a little bit of their money back right it's like everything has to be like Okay, we spent two billion dollars on it, and it made a hundred billion dollars, or whatever it is. Like <laughs> it's it's insane, and it, 
and, and that's the been last coming thing for I'll... a long time, right? Like uh, uh, that the interview with Charlie Rose, uh, Oliver Stone in '94, is saying that exact thing. He's like, "There's so much pressure to like open in a giant mm -hmm. weekend that I feel like I can't really take risks. We have to." make a movie that we know is going to hit on all cylinders. It feels like Natural Born Killers is actually that movie. It made a shitload of money. Yes. It's a sensational, huge hit. Um, but uh, but the, yeah, there's not there's not a lot of that that happening now. We should talk about that. Like, what do you make of this? <laughs> like, considering what Oliver Stone is leveling at us, like, what do you make of this film being such a fucking smash hit? <laughs> Because it's got American all that sensational audiences. stuff, right? I mean, yeah. it's. Uh, it, I remember actually like shaking when I first saw this movie. The opening scene uh, at a diner when they're like killing people in the diner, I felt like exhilarated. Honestly, in the same way I felt when I first played Grand Theft Auto, mm. uh, and I was able <laughs> to, you know, just lay lay people out with a gun in the middle of the street, and I'm like, "What is wrong with me? Why am I so excited about this?" Because the other part of me is like horrified. But that's, I mean, that, that's, that, I mean, that whatever dialectic that is at work there is entirely what Stone seems to be playing with, right? Yeah. Like, it's, it's, it's weird because on the one hand, he seems like he's totally moralizing in a really obvious way. On the other, on the other part of it, to me, seems like he's just pointing out something that we don't talk about enough, which is how, um, how much we're, our, our, our sort of attention is driven by salaciousness. Uh, and I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that, maybe that's a bigger conversation about like, why are we into this stuff? Stone, yeah, Stone, Stone has that, that sequence with the, with, uh, Russell Means, that like awful sequence in, in like the yes. TP. Yes. Like, and there's, it's, uh, they, they, it's the only scene he does this, right? Where they project words onto them, onto yeah. Mickey and Mallory. And it says like too much TV. And I'm kind of like, is this like his supposed to be his like native American subject? subjectivity like looking at these white men that are these white people with like the word demon on them etc like that was the one attempt i felt like where stone was trying to like maybe investigate the like original sin of american history or something yeah for like, sure yeah it was, it was kind of clumsily done but either way uh yeah there's a there's a feeling that that the american people are into mickey and mallory i don't know part of it is weird because the era of mass shooting that st that happens afterwards it's not like the media made darlings out of all these mass shooters. Instead, we're just kind of like depressed by it and disgusted by it. And it didn't really go like we don't have a Mickey and Mallory, really. Like, I don't know who that Bonnie and Clyde character is post uh, natural born killers. But like the media isn't exactly like the way he's portraying it. It is a cartoonish vision. Yeah. Yeah. He's I, I took that exaggeration to be more sort of making the point that like the media fetishizes these people right, and their coverage, yeah. not necessarily in the sense that like turns them into people that, you know, we aspire to be, but in their coverage. And uh, speaking of Spike Lee, he talked about this with regards to um, Summer of Sam mm -hmm. and people were asking him, you know, at the time, like, you know, you're, you're devoting an entire movie to like about this, like, that's not okay. And he points out like the New York times, all these other publications made, you know, tenfold profits by covering this murderer. Like, why are they not being indicted? Why, why are they not uh, put on the same, you know, 
cross that I am. Mm. And so I think like I took the stuff about the sort of celebritization of of the of Mallory and Mickey to be less a literal translation to what happens in real life and more just sort of a commentary on the way the media you know, sensationalizes these images and makes them a part of, you know, the, the everyday uh, landscape, yeah. uh-huh. their characters. Yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. in, in covering them, you know, whether it's done so sort of morosely or mm-hmm. with an excitedness, there is still potentially an issue because I think what Stone is saying is like, you're just adding to the landscape of violence that we're, you know, operating in. Like right, we're, right. we're hungry for this kind of thing. And the media knows that. And this is represented very uh, literally in mm. Robert Downey Jr.'s mm-hmm. character. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's telling that literally the man with the movie camera <laughs> in the movie uh, is, is the one that crosses the threshold between like civilian and like, participant in in the violence you know that's a great point yeah uh and and so i i don't think that you know to to go to the question earlier you know asking like oh does does stone feel himself guilty in this uh these implications i i think to an extent and i also you know know that uh we haven't mentioned him too much but another reason for the success of this movie is very likely the fact that quentin tarantino's name is attached to it um, you know, this is 1994, so this is is Pulp Fiction, but it's also off coasting off of the backs of Reservoir Dogs and a hit in like True Romance as well. Um, you know, his he was he was the hottest thing in Hollywood for a few years there, and everyone wanted a piece of whatever he had. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his original script focused, I think, more principally on the Wayne Gale character on Robert Downey Jr.'s character and his sort of infatuation with and participation in uh, the violence that that Mickey and Mallory were were committing. That's really interesting. It makes me wonder what Tarantino's vision was, because I know he I mean, I know he disowned this movie. And I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I was looking around for more extensive um, comments from him about it, but I didn't really find anything. I know he has a book coming out this fall. I don't yeah. know if he'll if he'll talk about it in there, but um yeah i i felt like uh in in some ways i'm wondering like why, why would tarantino be so upset about about stone's version of his story you know what what is the problem um how did he feel he misinterpreted it or made it a different way that's that's an interesting question to me because in in some ways it does feel like the the media's vision of a tarantino movie because like I, I love how like the media still thinks like whenever they talk to tarantino i say the media i mean like hollywood media it's always like they ask like are you they ask about violence. They just assume that Tarantino's only thing is violence and that he's the only guy in Hollywood that makes violent movies, etc. When he's really like, when you're talking about like people that make provocations and films that still like ask us to uh, intervene on violence in some way and think about it. I mean, Tarantino's one of those, one of the last remaining figures that Hollywood pays for to do that. Um, but at the same time, there's all this hand-wringing about his stuff that's still... It's still that feels very 90s. Like whenever people yes. bring up Tarantino, yep. it feels very, very 90s. I mean, I, I think he's so that really great clip of him where someone asks him. I think it's actually about um, the uh, the portrayal of Margot Robbie in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood at the film mm-hmm. festival, and he says, "I reject your hypothesis." And I'm like, "That's yes. a guy who's been asked the same fucking question for 25 years." Yeah. Yes. Um, and it feels like it feels like uh, 
that's there in Natural Born Killers. He's already sort of thinking about media and violence, but we get Stone's vision of Tarantino's story. Yeah. That hand-wringing is parroted by movie-going audiences. Um, like, I think there's... And this is where I find the media complicit. I actually think that one of the, the biggest sins is not just the sort of proliferation of, of violent images, but rather the moralizing of the the existence of those images which they themselves perpetuate right mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. it's hilarious to me someone who operates in and around media asking a director about violent images i'm like that's literally the currency you all operate in it's art man i mean i i really think of i i, I just think of films as paintings in a lot of ways and and in in the sense of like you know all of these all of these tones and shades whether it be violence or sexual assault or any of these horrible things are part of the world and part of the paint that filmmakers use i mean it'd be really weird to like go to picasso and and and, and talk to him about guernica and be like wow you're you're putting a lot of violence up on that up on that uh, yes. on that canvas, brother. Uh, why don't you make something <laughs> positive for us to look at? It's kind of like what the fuck are artists for then? Like, right. I mean, and that and that is a I mean that is a debate, right? I mean, people do have different visions and expectations of what art is supposed to be. We are the cinephile type people who are like, we want art to be challenging and fucked up, and I don't care if it's fucked up because it's part of the 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 sort of palette of our world. But uh, I mean, I, I have to recognize in part because I've taught classes on film that to, to younger people who have deep, deep, deeply different visions of what film is supposed to be. Um, and, and for them, they don't want to see stuff that's unpleasant. And that to me is crazy. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> different strokes. <laughs> different yeah. strokes. I think like part of that is I'm going to make a a broad assertion here that is not founded on anything other than my observance of the world and people in it. A hot um, take, I believe is what that's described. As. A yes. hot take, yes. Um, I think like the demand for images that are not ever challenging, unpleasant, uh, painful in any way is a response to how painful just existence has become and I how agree. yes uh, totally mm -hmm. how much um we need screensavers baby just to yeah. bliss out to and rather than taking a critical posture toward <laughs> the structural and <laughs> institutional powers that are creating the immiseration we are all entrenched in every single day we point our finger at a movie or a filmmaker or an author and that's all well and good like if you want to you know restrict that pedophile's access to capital i will not stop you um but that that's not the source of the problem right and that's that's where i think like i find this perspective of like this totally this totally perfect veneer of, of virtue to be uh, a completely flawed one because you want an escape. I understand that, but <laughs> the, the escape through, you know, media alone and, and media that isn't, that is just soft and warm and comfortable is not the escape that's actually going to solve the problems. Like you need a material escape. You need support and community and uplift 
that come outside of the things you consume. And that is like a place that people can't get to our only sort of access access rather of agency is believed to be this like mechanism of consumption. And that's Mm. like Mm -hmm. not true, first of all. And that like is a shitty existence for you to be like, oh, the only place I have power and control over like what my my lived experiences is in the things I watch. That sucks. Yes. But 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 if we have a if we have a a device in our pocket that like allows us to watch something constantly, then yeah, you're you're just you're describing something that's that's like drug addiction, you know, like I need the nice stuff at me. And then sometimes, you know, the bad medicine, uh, natural born killers feels like bad medicine in some ways, right? Like Mm -hmm. it feels like it's meant it's meant to fuck that up that dynamic up in some ways. And yeah, fewer and fewer people want that, I think. And that yeah, it is a product of like, um, the, the kind of stuff that the filmmakers were were really concerned about when they were making the movie it was like, do people really want to watch more of this when the the world itself is this now? You know, like it, it seemed like there was an uptick in violence or violent mm-hmm. attitudes. Again, that was a media creation, but it's still, yeah, I I think you're right. Like there, people want to be comforted, but in that comfort, they end up sort of falling further into the very structures that are creating the discomfort in the first place and the need for sedating kind of content. Yeah. It renders us completely complacent with the violence that exists outside of that screen. It's like, if I can find respite in a TV show that feels good, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but if that's all there is, then we are removing any sort of like antagonism towards the external structures. And, and that's where I think art can be potentially subversive and radical is like, if Oliver Stone is giving us two hours of shit that we're like, Oh God, like this is like a, a, you know, concentrate. This is like black tar America that I'm just booting directly into my veins. (laughs) Like then you know, maybe episode we might... title <laughs> Black <laughs> Tar should, America. Because yes. yeah. <laughs> this was then, this was the heroin age too in the nineties. Right? It totally was. Yeah. Maybe like leaving that screening, I'm thinking a little bit more about like the the the, the why behind. Like, why is life this way? Why is life in America this way? Like, and maybe that is like a seed toward some sort of you know liberatory experience i'm not making the argument that natural born killers is is necessarily like revolutionary or radical art but i think the complete dismissal of anything challenging removes us of the opportunity to have radical art to have experiences and stories showcased that force us to confront things that we aren't normally forced to confront um, elsewhere. I yeah. agree. I've got I've got one more thing to say on this, and then I promise we'll we'll get it back onto uh, natural born killers. But I, <laughs> I I think one of the things that I see under remarked upon with this argument about sort of like a, a kind of purity test with with media, with content, with art, what have you. Uh, is that we so routinely absolve our current worldview uh, and and sort of deign it to be 
pure, right? We that that it's good. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the truth of it, the reality of it is, is that if you're alive in 2022 in the United States of America, I promise you that some of the things that you are being fed, I promise you some of the things that you internalize as a value system are inherently fucked up. Like they're, they're, they're bad. No, you know? no, that couldn't be. <laughs> and, and so like, you know, I, we, I had this conversation on online with some, some friends the other day, a, a fellow podcast um, are, are doing a show about 300, the Zack Snyder movie. Oh God. And huge commercially successful movie. A lot of people like that movie. I like that movie. I think it's interesting. It's visually very arresting, you know, I have my problems with it, what have you, but like uh, it, is uh, a very admiring rendering of a sort of fascist eugenicist <laughs> kind of like society, right? Like it, it has this very sort of ubermensch kind of uh, like deifying quality to it that that is very challenging and and very like, ooh, this is ooh, yeah. But I didn't hear many people talking about that when it came up, right? Because it was kind of like married in sort of like this genre fiction, and also because like it. It just, you know, it, it again, it wasn't blunt. It wasn't a, a one-to-one, like, this movie is about fascism or anything you could, like You that. could easily miss it. You can miss it, right. And and because for whatever reason, like, people took to it. People found, like, I, I knew people, you know, I, I grew up in a, a pretty conservative community. I grew up kind of, like, in, in, in the church as well. I knew people who, like, internalized that idea of, like, 300, like, masculinity and we're like, this is badass. So like, this is cool, right? Like, we we should be killing babies that are born <laughs> like that. But but you <laughs> didn't get fascist pilled while you watched it. <laughs> no, I didn't. Right? Uh, I, I I survived to today, and, and I'm able to look <laughs> at it critically. And and that's ultimately the point. You know, it's like, yeah, I just it, it's just interesting the way that you know, like we set our sights on things that have uh, a, a more obvious kind of reflection of yes. of a sort mm-hmm. of cultural cultural value system or, or, or a problem in culture that that we want to critique and say like we're n- you mustn't look at that you know like divert your eyes uh whereas a lot of other things in society are are just sort of intrinsically imbued with mm-hmm. a lot of these same problematic visions um and and pass idly by because they uh they couch it in more shit. Marvel movies, perfect example. <laughs> Marvel movies are a perfect example. Yeah, we use the concept um, uh, on our show of the Trojan horse um, a lot to think about. Like, I mean, actually, with uh, with Andrew Dominic and and his film Killing Them Softly, mm-hmm. um, the Trojan horse as being like you know the the filmmaker that that and and the artist because I mean Brad Pitt is sort of a Trojan horse in his own way in his career of like inserting ideas certain ideas of thematic ideas about violence and capitalism particularly into the into their films and the trojan horse i feel like there's there are fewer and fewer filmmakers that are doing that like um uh the the, the maximalist film like the the natural born killers is a maximalist film right like this sort of genre of like just giant pulsating everything firing at all cylinders like wolf of wall street i feel like is a trojan horse film in its own way right where it's mm-hmm. like you sort of like and and that's why it, it's a similar film in the sense of how it was received, right? People look at it like, wow, Scorsese made this like gross celebration of like frat boy Wall Street behavior. Right. And you're like, well, he but he's painting with those tones, right? The fact that you are saying this is just a celebration means that that's how you sort of witnessed it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, and I'm again, not saying like there's an absolute meaning on this stuff, but it's pretty hard to miss in things like in these in Wolf of Wall Street and Natural Born Killers that these 
filmmakers are obviously sort of intervening on the excitement of the image themselves in order to kind of play with what's underneath. Um, and that, that seemed really obvious with those movies, but again, people fucking miss it. Right. It's like, because I, it, that part of it is maybe the medium is the message where it's kind of like, okay, you see Wolf of Wall Street, you see natural born killers. All you see is the violence and the hell and the, the sex, drugs and rock and roll and maybe miss like, I don't know. There's something totally going on in those films that are a lot more critical than the content might suggest, I guess. Yep. Absolutely. You know who celebrates Wall Street gang is Barack Obama. Ooh. Burned. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> like, this is my point, right? Yeah, it's like yeah, yeah. it's easy to point at Martin Scorsese and say, <laughs> Oh, like you're lauding like all of these Wall Street guys and bro culture. And it's like, that's a movie. Okay. First and foremost, let's talk about the way that like our society does that in real life mm -hmm. and destroys people's lives as a because of as a result of that pedestaling. Like that's where that's where I get really incensed because I'm like, you think that policing these images is you policing something real and it's not yeah. like take that antagonistic posture and put it towards the institutions of power that are actually creating the things that you think this movie is celebrating like what That's... would the what would the uh the, the the wolf of wall street movie be if it like what you know if it satisfied these conditions i i guess it would be the first wall street oliver stone where like you're right. people yeah. are punished <laughs> at the end and you find out who the i mean who the good guys and bad guys are and that seems like the marvel thing is very much a product of that right this sort of like really I need to know who the good guy is and I need to know yes. who the bad people are. And that's that when we're, I mean, I guess the society has become much, much more uncomfortable with, um, sort of seeing, uh, a, a, a dynamic, dynamic characters where you're kind of like unsure how you feel about them. I, there's a line in, I'm a, I'm such a nineties guy, but like in swingers where Vince Vaughn says like, I don't want you to be the PG 13 guy that everybody's pulling for. I want you to be like the guy in the R rated movie where you're not sure if you like the guy or not, you know, yes. like that, that sort of like, I mean, that was the seventies, right? Like the seventies were filled with fucking movies where it's like, this yeah. guy's awesome, but holy shit, he just did something really insane. Like they, sh I mean, characters that are like committing crimes, like sexual assault, where you all of a sudden feel like I am spinning inside in terms of how I feel about this stuff. It feels like there's not really a thirst for that, and certainly it's not profitable. No. Yeah. I mean, this lands us back to the the point about people wanting things that are easy and sort of already decided and digested for them. They don't want to do any digesting. They don't want to do any sort of completing the thought or like coming to their own conclusions. They want all the conclusions fed to them, and they want it to be really obvious. And I think it's a chicken and egg thing, right? Yeah. I think that the strictures of capital have created movies that exist on that plane. And so audiences have come to expect and, and demand it. And likewise, I think, you know, as the, the decline of our society has marched on, like people have become more um, adamant about like, things being black and white because things feel so exigent. And that's, that's not, it's not to say that's not, there isn't some kernel of like validity there, but I think again, it's like, it's placing all of the weight on, on media and not necessarily and, and art and not necessarily like placing it on the institutions that 
are creating the circumstances that we're responding yeah, to. Totally. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I mean, in part, part of me hopes that we've moved on a little bit from like, just like the TV made people crazy thing. But like, at the same time, I'm kind of like social media literally did make people crazy. So I, I think you're right. in sort of in the sense of like, um, it makes me think that the internet created and social media in particular created a such a fractured reality that people do see like, that's what clickbait is for. It's like, there's a, it's like, there's a kind of need for some, something solid to grab a hold of. It feels like even conspiracy theory, like allows people to feel like I know something, you know, like I know something and I'm right. And my worldview is correct. And that, that, that's a need that's really dangerous because, you know, people become certain about something, um, in a way that, that, that is, is, is a product of their uncertainty about everything else. And that, that, yes. that to me is like, yeah, part of, that's the, that's definitely part of that natural born killers discourse. I mean, it's, it, 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 this movie made me think of a million other movies. I was thinking about fight club as well. Like fight club is, <laughs> I don't know if you guys are going to do fight club, if you've done fight club, but it's like the ultimate 90 movie yet. in some ways, but it yep. seems like it's like similar territory, right? You're like watching two criminals together. You're like, it's about the media and violence. Um, but it's totally different in terms of its aesthetic approach and its sort of value system. And it's only what five years later. Yeah. Something like yeah. That. Yeah, yeah, it's 99. That's right. Feels way think, more modern to me. I ju I'd say this because I just watched Fight Club the night before I watched Natural Born Killers. And I'm like, <laughs> Fight, Club, Fight Club seems like it's in a totally different world, even though it's talking about the same shit. They're looking at the TV and they're saying like, oh, the TV made us this way. There's a like sort of like TV baby discourse going on in Fight Club. Yeah. You know, what's funny, though, is like, I actually think that Stone anticipated a little bit of of the dynamic that we have with the internet and with social media in the sense that his films, particularly JFK and natural born killers and to a lesser extent, the doors um, all kind of like put you on this like unsettled footing of like collaging, like real imagery or like images that are are parodying like something real like the american maniacs like show logo um then towards the end like cutting real footage from trials and you know images of waco texas into the right, film yeah. right so he's he's creating this environment where like you are interacting with things that are artifice and narrativized but then you are also interacting with things that are real life images but that are also to a lesser extent narrativized and that i think speaks to this mindset that we have with social media and the internet today where it's like we think we're sort of we have a handle on like what's real and what isn't when the fact of the matter is is that when you're online like everything's up for grabs right mm -hmm. like there there's this there's this sort of delusion that you know uh, oh, if I'm reading this like piece from the New York Times, like this, these are facts and not propaganda. Or like, you know, when I'm when I'm investigating this thing myself, when I'm on fucking, you know, QAnon Reddit or whatever it is, like <laughs> I'm I'm diving into the real story and all of it is artifice and all of it is manipulated to a certain extent. And I, I really like that Stone even though he's not using those same yeah. mediums is like inserting us as an audience into that same landscape. Totally. Yeah. I feel that. I wanted to ask you, David, 
specifically about uh, Tommy Lee Jones's character oh, in this yeah. film. Oh my God. We Speaking should have the, like the performances. Right? Yeah. Sweet yeah. the Fugitive. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We haven't talked about these, the people that are in this movie at all. Like Tom no, Sizemore before that. he completely boned out of Hollywood on drugs. And um, God, the, Tom Sizemore was such an electric character or figure in 90s movies and then just yeah. went away. But he was yeah, on that, uh, that Dr. Drew show that's um, right the, yeah it's, the, i mean it's a the sad celebrity story. rehab one it, it is really sad Wait, he was yeah he was on like a later uh season of he like got into like rehab. he got into like smoking meth and shit like that. yeah like, he really was bad oh yeah. i didn't know that he, he was yeah. struggling with addiction his i mean his i knew entire... he was struggling with addiction i didn't know that he went on sort of like a televised you know adventure of his oh, recovery God. yeah he's he just he really uh had some some struggles uh, to, to tie it to something that we just thought we just had uh, Molly Lambert, uh, the the host of Heidi World on our show. And and Tom Sizemore was with Heidi Fleiss for a significant portion of the 90s. Oh, that's um, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. which was, again, like tabloid celebrity. It was one of those stories. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, Tommy Lee Jones is, is really fucking like disgusting in this movie. I mean, they all are like they all are pushing. It. It's clear that Stone wanted them. To like push it to the to the like maximum cartoon grossness, like Tom Sizemore, and, and I feel like Tommy Lee Jones characters are like licking their lips a lot. Yes. They're yeah. like they're like just really gross. His mustache is really gross. It's interesting because like the character, I mean, it it kind of subverts his his uh, Tommy Lee Jones's sort of like coolness in a way mm -hmm. coming off of the Fugitive because the Fugitive he had such a like it's almost like this Tommy Lee Jones had found his voice and it was that character in The Fugitive, right? And then he just goes and does weird stuff with Oliver Stone where he, he played like a he played like a uh, like a gay millionaire guy in JFK. Yeah, you, I right? was going to say, yes. it, 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 I was going to say, it feels like uh, um, a more cartoonish version of that character. Totally, and, yeah. And this actually, to me, this prison warden feels like a precursor to his Two-Face in Batman Forever. Oh, oh my fuck. God, 100%. I forgot about that, yeah. Speaking of comic book movies. Yeah. <laughs> hey, there's a nuanced character. You don't know whether he's good or bad because he's sort of like both, right? He's both, right. <laughs> what do we do? What do we make of him? Man, he's a he's a morally great character. Um, No, but I wanted to ask you, like, what what you made of 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 Tommy Lee Jones, specifically his casting, which I think you touched on as like the prison warden, but like the, the, the role that he plays in the film, particularly the back half, like, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there, but there was, I, I had like a bunch of like mixed feelings watching him. Mm, I, I mean, the only thing I'm thinking about is the fugitive again, because you know, he, in the fugitive, he plays such like a positive vision of what law enforcement could be. Um, whereas in this film, he plays the opposite, like the nightmare of what law enforcement <laughs> is basically like a, like a, like a plantation slave owner or yes. overseer yes. is, is, is how it's portrayed. So it makes me wonder about like the consciousness of that. And, and, and even like Jones's politics, cause I'm sort of like, he often plays that like lawman, that good lawman. I mean, mm -hmm. no country for old men is another example of him like playing this like lawman. Who's like the good guy, the one that we actually feel like, Oh, this is why I, this is why I'm not a, uh, 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 an a cab person because they're actually good cops and it's Tommy Lee Jones. But in in the future <laughs> or in, uh, in Natural Born Killers, he's not that at all. He's like the nightmare. Um, and so is Scagnetti, the, the, the character played by Tom mm -hmm. Sizemore. The every institution here is corrupt. There's no that's what's kind of weird is how one noted is. It's just sort of like everything is repulsive. And like Mickey and Mallory, I wonder what you guys think of 
Woody Harrelson and Juliette Lewis in this movie. I, I'd love to hear because like they were hot stars at the time. They were yeah. fucking huge. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what Woody did between this and White Men Can't Jump in '92, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, he was doing like mostly comedy stuff. And I, you know, I in in another conversation with Oliver Stone, I saw that he like specifically picked Woody and Juliet uh, because uh, of their unique ability to uh, kind of emulate his vision of like white trash Americana. Sure. Um, and, and I think they do a good job with that for sure. Like I think of Juliette Lewis's mullet throughout this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and just her, I, that's her. So she embodies that like. Perfectly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I love Juliette Lewis now. Mm-hmm. So she's I, a fucking badass. I was, I was not a huge fan of hers for a long time and whatever it was, I think we watched like strange days and maybe a couple other things. And also, you know, just like recently seeing her come back for um, yellow jackets, that, that showtime series. Uh, I am like now like a, a switch flipped. And so like, I see her now and I'm like, I love her. She's amazing. Uh, and she's really captivating in this movie. I think she has like a really good performance. She, is super young here too has to be because she was in Cape Fear a couple of years before this and playing a teenager. Uh, God, had, Scorsese, Oliver yeah. Stone. I mean, they, they were. Yeah. She was everywhere in this. She was. Yeah, and and I she did edgy stuff too. I always felt like, oh, like this girl, if she's in a movie, it's probably going to be interesting. And that that yes. broke that broke down in the late nineties, but that's another story. Um, yeah. But for for a while, I mean, there was. I we haven't mentioned it, but like. The 90s were an edgy moment in movies, you know, and like there was this sort of indie thing going on in Tarantino. I guess we have mentioned it. Tarantino embodies that thing. If like all of a sudden Hollywood's looking for new ideas. I mean, it is kind of like a micro 70s in a little bit, a little mm-hmm. bit. Right. Yes. It's like Hollywood's yep. uh, Hollywood's searching. They know. I mean, I just had a conversation on my show about uh, MTV at the same time. MTV in the 90s is like they know their audience is changing. They know people are looking at other media now. They know the internet is coming. They know people are getting older um, and they're looking for something. And in, in, in Hollywood, that comes out as sort of like edgy, um, uh, you know, subversive filmmakers that are not necessarily political. Like, I mean, Kevin Smith made his, made his entry into Hollywood at this moment because mm-hmm. he was just making movies that were tapping into a way that people talked that wasn't really present. I mean, this is when Beavis and Butthead is kind of come out, like South Park's coming. There is a, like a, I mean, conservatives are going to go nuts about this stuff, obviously, and feel like the world has gone to hell. But at the same time, there is kind of, I don't know, there's a, there's a sort of punk rock thing going on. And Woody Harrelson, and especially Juliette Lewis, are, are sort of there in that. I don't know, certain actors you feel like, I trust these people because they're doing interesting stuff, even if it's not like the director that, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. The, I mean, conservatives in every decade and every century will freak out and think that the world is going to hell. That's <laughs> their, that's their, uh, lot in life. But, um, no, I, I think it's interesting too, that Woody Harrelson came from cheers. Right. And he's like, a totally different character mm-hmm. than a lot of a lot of the um roles he ended up playing uh in the 90s and and even to this day like we just watched um triple nine triple nine yes we just watched watched triple nine and he plays um a detective an alcoholic uh he's a great character in the film but again he's like tapping into this sort of like 
darker like rawness which Mm -hmm. like you know where his career started is is very much not that place but he in this movie i think embodies something really important which is like that sort of charisma that the the that stone is ascribing to figures like woody Mm -hmm. um or rather mickey um right right that that Woody Harrelson is able to play this person who is, you know, utterly horrific and, and completely depraved and also kind of charming and like a smooth talker. And like, he looks good, right? Like when he's in his, like his, like um, (laughs) murderer man costume that he shows up in all the comic versions of him where he's like, got that white t-shirt, his glasses, his hair's in a ponytail and he's wearing the, you know, um, gun holster, like he looks really good. Um, but he's, he plays, he plays that, like that very narrow line of like someone who you like are briefly deluded into thinking is charming and also like a terrifying, you know, horrible man. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, he plays yeah. that really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that qual- that quality of his, of his seems like it's it, it's something that, that fil- filmmakers picked up on in the 90s and just have been exploiting ever since. And he kind of found like this. There's something un- un- unnerving about him. At the same time, he looks like this kind of like charming American farm boy type guy. I think it was the 90s yeah. that he had a reputation, too, in public as being like, like kind of a bad boy that smoked a lot of weed. And mm-hmm. so like there was... Right. A, there was, I mean, drugs were an element of this film. Like Natural Born Killers was, I went to UC Santa Barbara, which is a school that's like all like just a, you know, a weed party school. And like, we had like screenings of movies and the double screening in the late nineties was, was Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and Natural Born Killers. Yeah. Like, yes. you know, that's the like 420 screening. Right. And I'm like, what does it mean that like a bunch of stoned college kids want to go watch these quote unquote nightmare roller coaster rides into uh, you know twisted america or whatever um and and weed is the is the sort of entryway i guess i guess what i'm getting at is that there is a kind of like i don't know it's 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 a kind of rhyming of the 60s counterculture in the 90s that happens and stone is totally yep. kind of like the carrier of that and now i realize that well it makes sense that like boomers who experience the 60s are kind of subtly present in the 90s too. And we end up with like Woodstock 94, Woodstock 99, Lollapalooza. If you watch mm-hmm. Lollapalooza clips on YouTube of like, you know, Perry, Perry Farrell and all those like, all those like <laughs> bands. I mean, they're hippies. They're like, it's like, like it yeah. is a redo. Yeah. And it feels like Natural Born Killers in a weird way is like sort of like, this is the legacy of 60s thinkers. Um, and Stone is a 60s thinker who is kind of bringing that attitude towards what he sees in the 90s. Uh, I would say that his aesthetic is totally stolen in a lot of ways. I mean, he admits that, right? That like, it's like he was, and, and stolen isn't maybe the right word. It's like he was intentionally taking what the, what the, the world looked like, what television looked like. And the result is like a two hour, I think he described it this way. It's like a two hour MTV music video. Yeah. Um, but like of that era, right? Like that very, that black and white and color and all that stuff. Um, I don't know. It feels like the the 60s counterculture is there in in this movie um, through Stone. And through the weed, too. And through the weed. Yeah, I com- I completely agree. And I don't know, just speaking on on Oliver Stone's like aesthetic and style here, I, I was thinking about this. Uh, it has nothing to do with what you were saying, I guess, David, but just how kind of flat modern 
like movie making is, mm-hmm. in, you know, in large. And, and yeah, there are still some people who are like really strong visual stylists, but there's nobody like, like, like who's the modern day Oliver Stone? Mm. You know, like who's the next Oliver Stone who's doing stuff like this? Vera Drew. Vera Drew, our friend Vera Drew, uh, free the people's Joker, everyone. Oh God, uh, yeah, <laughs> m- maybe there, right? Like working well, in a lot of different. That, that o- but, but it- that auteur model sort of over, right? I mean, we've got yeah. like dinosaurs left. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson. Paul Thomas Anderson is still there. Uh, David Fincher is still allowed to make movies, right? Um, I mean, I guess Dominic has a couple more that they might pay for, but I don't know. Uh, it's a it's a weird moment. I I. I I see those schedules for like Marvel movies and they're like, these are the like 48 Marvel movies that are scheduled for next year. And it's just sort of mind boggling, but yeah. that's the nostalgia trap. Part of me is like, and, and I think what you guys are doing with your podcast too, is like, let's examine a previous decade as a way of sort of thinking about where investigating that thesis and that nostalgia idea, because we're not saying, Oh, things were great, great in the nineties. And now they're shit. Now they're shit. And they were also shit in the nineties, but there was something <laughs> else going on as well. And I mean, Matterborn Killers rests at sort of at the like at the apex of that transition in mm-hmm. some way um, because it's right before mass shootings explode into the national consciousness. It's right before um, the internet becomes the sort of dominant social and economic model. I mean, there's a lot going on, but Matterborn Killers feels like I don't know. How, I, I guess maybe we could close with like this question. I wonder what you guys think about the legacy of Matterborn Killers. Is it around? Because I don't, I don't feel like people are quoting this movie. Like, it does it have a cultural cachet for people? Yeah, we were kind of talking about this uh, b- before we watched it, uh, and I kind of had the sense that in in modern culture, Natural Born Killers is probably known more for its proximity to and its. I'll say inspiration, but I say that with like a, an asterisk. Yes, it's inspiration for a lot of sort of like copycat killers and uh and uh acts of violence that were sort of you know lended some some ideas from this movie so the uh, and controversy I think that, is what people remember more than the movie itself yes i i would argue that that's true i you know yeah. like that that people remember that more than the actual film um and also just because like i have always you know like like i said i've never seen this movie and it wasn't because i didn't have interest but i i have heard from many people who have seen it who have just said yeah it's okay it's messy you know it's it's uh not a particularly subtle movie it's kind of a blunt satire gets a little repetitive and boring i have to say in the prison sequence it's like just prison for when once it becomes a prison film i'm just like this is going to last for an hour and and i (laughs) I, and it's just going to be like the same thing over and over Mm -hmm. again but you know but with oliver stone specifically like and i think this about jfk too jfk is a movie with tons of problems right it's uh, a movie that pedals in some like almost immediately debunked conspiracy theories (laughs) that were like dated by the time the movie was released um it has like a very clear kind of like weird homophobic through line you know like that that is it's very uh unfriendly towards like the gay community it calls them the homosexual underworld or something Mm -hmm, like that mm -hmm. in the movie basically asserts that gay people are why jfk is dead right right and and uh you know, those just, wily scheming gays in New Orleans, scheming gays in New Orleans, dressing up as, uh, you know, JFK is still a better stuff. movie than Natural Born Killers, don't you think? I, I think so. Yeah. But, and my point is just that, you know, like for, for all the problems that I can find in JFK 
narratively all the problems I can find in natural born killers in terms of its its thesis being kind of muddied uh, as a as a stylist purely there is no one else like Oliver Stone there no one <laughs> no one makes a movie like Oliver Stone uh, and it's it's always mesmerizing like we we there were a couple of moments that I just had to like rewind and rewatch mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. in this just because of the, the the use of different mediums and film stocks and angles like it it's uh it's it's just like a master like tactician yes playing with with the film uh and on that front alone it's a thing that i was not anticipating because no one had told me to anticipate it though i should have you know um but but it's i'm a kind, kind of a movie comer. that can make you a cinephile honestly because it calls attention to so much to like the apparatus and you're all of a sudden thinking about yes. exactly what you just said Aaron. and you're like sitting there being like how'd they do this and like wow look at that i mean the sort of like floating convertible through the like ba- um the, through the sort of like back projection that they're doing oh yeah that stuff is so cool yeah and it looks very tarantino too like this it is like the, this is the heroine sequence in pulp fiction is done that yep. way i don't know if you guys have seen the movie breathless the uh richard gear movie not the not the godard breathless the like richard gear movie from like 1983 that mm. movie is enti- is is that aesthetic like entirely it's it, mm. it, it, like tarantino 100 it's a pulp fiction type movie and it's mm. got like that same car floating with through the projection and stuff like that but you're right. There, Oliver Stone. He's. It's all. It's. He's almost like Ken Burns in that. Like, it, there's an aesthetic that is like a trademark. Like Oliver Stone created a, um, a particular way of looking that is totally his own. And I would say that in some ways he sort of like innovated so much that every everything else became like him, uh, and his stuff doesn't seem unique anymore. Yeah. Yes. Now he's I a totally podcaster. Agree. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, he's got to do something in his old age. Um, yeah, on the question of like the legacy of this film, like I had a thought where I was like, oh, should I post that like I'm watching this movie? Like, am I going to get canceled? And that I think sums up like what we're talking about, right? Like I I w- am aware of the fact that a lot of people think this movie is dangerous, um, mm, particularly mm. because it was expressly cited by people who committed very terrible acts of violence. But one of the things I think we've talked about on over the course of this episode is like, is that really what is that real? Right. Like they may think that it's this movie that is, you know, commanding them to do X, Y, and Z, but there are clearly several intersecting forces of, of oppression and alienation that would cause a person to, um, to commit acts of violence like this but but i think the fact that i like had a brief pause and was like oh are people gonna like think that i'm endorsing the columbine shooting by saying that i'm watching <laughs> that's so this funny movie. i it's funny that you guys have that association because i don't think of this movie with columbine at all but now i obviously i am because i'm like the natural born killer thing i remember reading about columbine them using nbk but the, it's funny because the movie i associate with columbine is the matrix when it came, yeah, it, people were like, oh, true. they wear trench coats and shit like that. And it was all yeah. ridiculous. Like that conversation, all of it was lame. And it was kind of like, I, I think that, I don't know, that since we ha- we've had um, like Dylan and Eric, the two guys that committed the Columbine murders, since their vision uh, became true, came true, which is they, their vision was of like a world in which there were mass shootings all the time. Um, it, it becomes a, a kind of opportunity for us to investigate you know what kinds of people that that create that 
and I think that we've we've moved past the matrix and the video games as right. Like we don't think I, I yeah. feel like that's not the modern thinking of mass shootings at this point. People are hopefully having a vision that's a little bit a little bit more complex than that. I don't know. Natural born killers I, is like a it doesn't come down one on one side or the other on this question, but but because you know it brings up all the sexual assault stuff and all the kind of like um the 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 factors that created these people beyond the media but it does feel like an intervention on america and i feel like there were conservatives that hated this movie because they felt like it was an attack on american institutions like they saw it as exactly what it was it's not it's 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 not hard to miss the point of this movie in some ways because it is a pretty vicious attack on totally on this, on this sacred nation and its yeah. culture yeah right and that's that's the problem right People, I think, see this movie and think, oh, the violent images in this film cause violence in the real world <laughs> and not the violent images in this film are reflective of the violence that happens in the real world. Mm -hmm. And and I want to be clear, I don't associate this movie with Columbine. I know that other people. Oh, do. yeah. Yeah. Now and I'm that, now I'm remembering that. Yeah. And that is like I think that sums up the. The sort of legacy nicely is that like or yeah. rather mm -hmm. like in a fucked up way that <laughs> that like people think about this movie and they think about like the violence that took place you know in and around it and and that's the legacy of the film and not what the film is actually doing which as you said is indicting the institutions that like create a landscape of violence and access to guns and like right oh all, yeah all of that stuff like that that the movie is not thought of as an indictment of those things and mm -hmm. i i wish that it was which is why i was actually really excited for us to talk about this film because i think i i will just say like i actually like it better than jfk which <laughs> is probably controversial and will get me canceled but like as an artistic statement and as sort of like an exploration of the 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 power of images not to corrupt but to actually like force us to confront our corruption mm -hmm. i think this film is incredibly effective and even if it's not successful i appreciate that he is attempting that feat yeah i agree and what's interesting you mentioned fascism in 300 aaron like thinking about like the legacy of this movie like the legacy of fight club is much more fascist than the legacy of natural born killers like yes! the, le yeah. the legacy of fight club is people using the word snowflakes and like taking on like a lot of the ideas from the movie just straight yeah. um and yeah natural born killers is kind of dead in that way it doesn't have a currency in the same way it exists as this sort of like um, this ghost in the '90s of Oliver Stone saying, "This is uh, this is what I see," um, and in that sense, it's a really to me like going back and watching Stone's movie *Natural Born Killers* now was a kind of uh, go, like going back in time and watching TV in '94. It felt like mm -hmm. the same exact like he he really consciously duplicated the feeling of like flipping channels through yes. this nightmare. And yes. in that sense, it's like, that's why you all have a panic attack when you're watching it. Cause it's kind of like, Jesus Christ, like, was it really like this? These flickering images. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a deep, heavy movie. I'm glad we had this conversation because it did. I mean, it made me think a lot um, in terms of this question that has, it's still there. We're still talking about media. We still have dumb expectations. I mean, yeah. Fucking 1967, right? Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde with, uh, with Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty. 
the, this, people had the same criticisms. They were like, they made these cool characters that are violent, and people flipped out about it. Yeah. But like, I don't know, those movies are now considered high art in some way because of their sort of ability to transcend a lot of those conversations and exist on another plane. And I don't know, maybe maybe there will be a natural born killers renaissance at some point. It, maybe hopefully it'll be a, as a result of us posting this podcast. I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> I think like the the thing that's always interesting is the conversation about like, oh, the way that like movies are fetishizing, you know, rapists or murderers or whatever. And again, that like there isn't a sort of acknowledgement that like society does that like institutionally and like mm -hmm. protects these people and fucking, you and know, a little, a little movie called reality, which is right. which is a the, little the, film uh, called, called reality, Real which is the most problematic movie of all. Honestly. Yeah, yeah no, There's... I totally I totally feel that I really do. I mean, whenever I whenever honestly, whenever people are too deep in the woods talking about how bad a movie is and how like it's like a problem in society, I'm like, I see them like with a like a priest costume on they're preaching you know, and and part of me is just kind of like there are so much bigger things we could be talking about here. And the movies to me ought to have a place that's kind of like different than what it is. But it makes sense. I mean, it's kind of exactly what Oliver Stone was saying. Mm -hmm. Our only reality is that media. So, of course, we're going to talk about that movie being bad or good because it's really the only thing in front of our eyes. I don't know. Yes. Yeah, exactly that. I always go back to a a roger ebert quote uh yes. who loved this movie by the way four he, stars he, he and he, he and fucking Siskel gets it. both love this movie uh but he wrote a a rather positive review back in the day of dirty harry uh, a movie which he said is fascist and that he hates uh every part of on an ideological spectrum right but what he says at the end of this is you know he's decoupling the art and the statement from the like an, an endorsement of fascism and says you know like there are people for whom this will be a problematic thing people will like you know declare this movie evil or or you know dangerous to whatever and he says if there aren't ideologies like harry's in this movie in the real world then the movie's depiction of it is is meaningless mm -hmm. it does it has no stake if there are, we shouldn't blame the bearer of the bad news. Right, we shouldn't right. kill the messenger. You yeah. know, and and I think that that is really uh, as eloquent a summation of like mm. art's proximity to reality and what it can and should do. Which is, does it reflect our reality back to us? Does it challenge us and make us think about it? Absolutely, I think it should do that thing. Uh, but it's also not. It's it's not a driver of social change. I, I like that. I like the uh, the separation of the aesthetic from the content and the message, and 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 we're not really sure of what the relationship between those two things are. Um, I remember Orson Welles. There's a clip of him at a at a, at a uh, news conference attacking Ilya Kazan because they ask him what they think of Kazan, and he's like, uh, yeah. "That guy's a fucking rat," uh, and he ratted out his friends, and and he's a piece of shit. And he made, he made this movie called On the Waterfront, where he which is a total uh, a movie that's a celebration of the informant and then and, and he's like that he should be ashamed of himself but then at the end orson welles says but he is a great filmmaker and those are great movies and yes. I'm like, i love that i love that or <laughs> that's such an own like it's such a fucking great own at the end to just be like yeah he, like it's almost like you should know better 
Eliakazan, but either way, um, I love that. I love that 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 notion that uh, I don't know. You have to take each movie on its own, and and I think that more more and more, you know, people are trained to look at movies as these grand transmissions rather than kind of situating them as a different kind of art. And I appreciate what you guys do with that. Um, so thank you guys. This is really fun. This is super fun. Thank I'm you, David. I'm so glad that you you made this happen, David. This is a really, really fantastic conversation. Cool. Let's do some more 90s movies sometime. Um, yes. Good to see you guys. Likewise. You too.